Look with me to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. And I'm just going to read, if you will, verses 1 through 11. Yes. Extra Bible. I'm sure somebody has an extra Bible, one in the back or boom, there we go. Taken care of. Excellent. Um, yeah, Isaiah read verses one through 11. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Wonderful. As we begin this venture, and we're only going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. And then next week, um, verses 3 and 5 we'll take into account. I don't think we'll get past that. Um, the, the command and message of comfort, the command and message of comfort is the title of this message. And really, you'll see it's straightforward from the text here. We see comfort and they are commanded to bring this comfort to the people of God. Yesterday um, was a day that um, if anyone uh, was awake that day or even if they were not, uh, they will f- remember it, I believe, for the rest of their lives. 9-11, uh, the Trade Center, Towers. I remember it. I remember someone calling me in my church and says, Pastor, we've been attacked. And I said, what do you mean? And so we got our television and we put an antenna on it, literally, and we got it tuned in. And I saw one building that was in flames. And then shortly after that, I saw another explosion. And I thought, no, they're simulating something. That's what's going on. It's a simulation. What I just saw didn't actually take place, and it did. And then, of course, we know what happens after that. Uh, Stories of people trapped in the building. 
screams, phone calls being made, people saying, I, I know that I won't get out. I love you. Hug the kids for me. Say hello to them. Tell them that I love them. I always have. And there were people trapped in those towers. And we saw images of even people, and I don't want emotions too much, but it's a part of the reality. Um, saw people, remember the couple hand in hand deciding that I, we won't be burned alive, so they jumped to their death. And there's another image of what's called the falling man as he just decides, I can't go through this, and he jumps to his death. And then we saw firemen going up uh, into the tower, risking their lives to save others. And then it came falling down. And it was this, (sighs) that I think was felt around the world. Can this be? And I have been to ground zero when it was just rubble. And I've been back now and I've been to the memorial And I've heard some of the stories of those yesterday who experienced it, who lost loved ones, who got a phone call and they were on the other end. It's, I love you. I won't see you again. And there are many people who are wondering in the days after that, perhaps they'll find my loved one. Maybe there is hope. I need something that will comfort me. I need something that will console me in the midst of this turmoil that I'm feeling inside. And some of those people never received the message that they had hoped for. It was another message. Some of those people kept placing hope in hope, if you will, thinking that maybe tomorrow or the next day or the next day. And that day never came. And how do you comfort someone? What words do you say? How can you uh, be that brother or sister that friend, that relative, that neighbor that can be by their side. You know, the scripture is clear. It tells us plainly that we should rejoice with those and we should weep with those who weep. I wept that day. People that I never knew of those, you know, 3,000 people that lost their lives that day. um, To my knowledge and over these 20 years, I've not discovered that I knew anyone that lost their life there. But that doesn't matter because the scripture tells us plainly, uh, what is the second great commandment? You are to do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so I felt for them, and there was a, a rage that I also felt as well, if I'm to be honest about it. And I thought, what can I do? Who has done this to us? So you wanted to comfort, and, and I wish that I could have gotten on an airplane, and I could have gone to New York City, and I could have gone to Pennsylvania, and I could have gone to D.C. to offer comfort, to say there is an answer, there is a solution. And sometimes... The best way that you can comfort is to be silent sometimes. I've learned over my years as a pastor, there have been calls that I have received. And it is, my dad was in an accident. She's gone. He's on his deathbed. And you go, and at times, um, there are obviously a number of scriptures that I'm familiar with, that I know, sermons that I preach. And one has to resist the temptation to give a person an outline to a message. And sometimes you just sit there and you listen. That can be the best comfort. 
And then there comes a time, and others have said to me over the years, Pastor, do you have a word from the Lord? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I do. (laughs) And then it's not preaching to them. It's, I do have a word from the Lord. Let me read to you from this. Let me read to you from this prophet. Let me read to you some of these words from Isaiah. Let me read to you some of these words from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me read to you some of the words from Paul to the Thessalonians. Then you can offer comfort to them. Because the ultimate comfort must come from the Lord. Do you agree with that? It must. It must come from the word of God. And this is what we see in this passage. It opens up this great uh, series of messages that we'll see in Isaiah 40 to 48. And it opens with these words, comfort, oh, comfort. The people of God needed comfort. Why did they need comfort? Because they are people, as Isaiah speaks into the future, that are in exile. They're under the heavy hand of the Babylonians. And the question would be, can God, can he come through? Has he heard? Where is our comfort? We are disturbed internally. We are bothered. Have we been forsaken? Is there no comforter? Is there one, even as we read at the end of chapter 40, is there one that can take us gently into his arms and can care for us? Where is Yahweh? Where is the covenant-keeping God? All we hear now are the gods of the lands, and particularly the gods of the Babylonians, and they are claiming that their deity is superior because if Yahweh was superior, why is it that we are in exile But, of course, we know why they're in exile, because of their own sin. There is a need for comfort. There is a need for you to comfort others that are going through issues in their life right now. We met with a dear family this was in our midst, and and they're going through difficulty and some trials physically. And the elders prayed for the brother and prayed for his family. And I can tell you, once he left the room, I could... I could see men taking off their glasses and, and wiping a tear from their eye. Because you hear a testimony and your heart goes out to the person. And in some ways, you would wish that maybe I could trade myself for them. And that's ultimately the greatest comfort that we can receive is because Jesus Christ was indeed a substitute for us when there's nothing we could have done to comfort ourselves because we were all steeped in sin, were we not? comfort, a need for it. Yes, there is a time when you should comfort by just being silent and being there. You just hold a person's hand and you just listen to them talk. And I found that some that know the word of God will comfort themselves. That is, they will begin to speak the truths that they already know and they will counsel themselves right in front of you. Then you can simply say, amen and amen. The world is a mess, is it not? Uh, there are people that are facing many needs for comfort, sickness, a need for comfort. They get that bad news, a need for comfort. Sometimes it's a besetting sin that they seem like they, they just can't. How can I get rid of it? How can I overcome it? A need for comfort for those that are genuinely striving. There's a need for comfort there. 
those that are facing other difficulties in life, and life brings us a myriad of heartaches and and pain, and then we need to be there to comfort them. But in this passage, silent comfort that's given, it is a loud voice that cries out that God is saying from his voice, I command you all to bring comfort to my people. Before we go a bit further, I want us to um, visit again this thought about the authorship of Isaiah and why it's important. I mentioned to you last week that um, some would believe that there is a second Isaiah and some would even say a third Isaiah. And I perhaps in a couple seconds told you why that is not the best position and ultimately because a prophet will speak prophetically, and that is into the future. And some would say, how could he possibly be speaking this way? He doesn't know Cyrus. As a matter of fact, um, when the people are exiled, it's a hundred years after his death. How can this be? Well, obviously the issue that they have is with the miraculous. And we don't have an issue with the miraculous. No, we don't. When we think about some of the reasons that we reject second or even third Isaiah, that the Jews treated this book as unity and believed that Isaiah wrote it. It was unified in their mind. Isaiah is the author of all that we have of the book after his name. And even when we think about the New Testament writers, they quote Isaiah and they treat the passages from the first and the second half as the same. So they're never saying, well, second Isaiah says, it is Isaiah says, let me give you an example and let's go through some of them. And we're going to look through our Bibles a great deal this morning. So uh, be prepared. Um, Matthew chapter three, let's begin there. Matthew three, Matthew three says in verse three, Matthew three Verse 3, it says, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path, what? Straight. Straight. Now, we just read that, did we not? And what is that from? That's from Isaiah 40. So he simply says, it is Isaiah who wrote this. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8. Um, Matthew, still in Matthew, Matthew eight seventeen, And what does it say here? And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And here, to whom does he refer? He refers to the suffering servant. Where is the suffering servant? Isaiah 53. So now this is not second Isaiah. This is Matthew 13. And then verse 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive for the heart of the people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return. And I would, in fact, heal them. But that's not the case They rejected the Lord. But this is from the first part of Isaiah, but simply it is prophecy of Isaiah. Look with me at Luke chapter 4. At Luke 4. This is curious. Luke 4, Jesus Christ is about to read 
the word of God in Luke 4, 17. Uh, let's look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he took the book of the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. So now we're in Isaiah 61. So some would say, well, that's third Isaiah that you're reading from. Well, not according to how we understand the New Testament writers to look at the word of God. Let's go over to John. John chapter 1. John 1. Fulfilled here, 1 and 23. Isaiah 1, 23 says what? Here, and he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And the reason I keep saying just prophet, Isaiah the prophet, is those who espouse a second Isaiah would say, um, it's an undisclosed person, an undisclosed prophet, or maybe not even a prophet who wrote it. Well, here it's, it's accredited to Isaiah, not an undisclosed writer. Um, and also, if you will, look at John chapter 12. John 12. John 12. And what does it say here, 38 and 39? This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah, they have blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Isaiah 53, who's believed us? This is a message that we proclaim. Who has believed that this suffering servant is the one who will, in fact, pay for sins? You see a similar thought in verse 41 as well. Isaiah said, look with me at the book of Acts. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And what does it tell us there? Acts 8, 29 in 30, then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage that he was reading was what? From Isaiah what? 53, that lamb that will be led to slaughter. It is Isaiah the prophet. Um, as well, let me go next. Um, 28, 25 is another example. We won't go there. Let's just jump all the way to the book of Romans. Let's go to the book of Romans, Romans nine, Romans nine. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. <laughs> it's, it's medicine for a preacher's soul. It really is. Um, Romans nine, 27 and 29 says, um, actually, no, I wouldn't go to Rome. I'm sorry, Romans. Yeah, it is 27 and 29. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel through the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. It is a remnant that will be saved for the Lord will exit his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. 
And again, Isaiah speaking. Um, Look with me briefly, if you will. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 16. Another example. And it says here, however, did they not heed the good news? For Isaiah says, Lord, again, who has believed our report? What we saw earlier, it is from Isaiah 53. So we do not accept any division of the book itself by separate authors. Another thing about it is not only we see how Christ used it, the apostles used it, um, Jews through the centuries, how they treated it as one book. Uh, But also, when we look at the unity of the book, there's a strong theological unity and the use of terms that go throughout, the names of God throughout, that say this is a unified book written by author. And even one um, Old Testament scholar took all the vocabulary of Isaiah itself because some would say, look at this major shift that's taking place in chapter 40. And then there's this major shift that's taking place in chapter 56. So he took all the vocabulary, put it into a computer and says, okay, show me uh, the distinctive vocabulary. And it's negligible. And that's true for anyone when they write, isn't it? If you write a letter to someone, uh, aren't there times when that letter takes on another tone? Haven't you written an email to someone and part of that email takes on another tone? And maybe because you perhaps know it has to be a stern, we'll call it a stern email, you start off with what? Accommodate. What do you say? Yeah, exactly. Hello, how are things going? It's been wonderful to know you. What a blessing that I've known you for the last 20 years. Our friendship goes as deep as a well of the ocean, you know. (laughs) However, (laughs) then it takes a turn, right? There's something I need to bring to your attention. Now, you could start the email off, you know what? I have some things to say to you. And let me just cut to the chase. You could do that. So it's not unusual that we have shifts in our language based on the purpose, So we say, no, we look at the vocabulary, the theological unity of it, the use of terms, the names for God, one author, one book um, is what we would say. Um, It really wasn't until the 18th century that someone questioned that it wasn't Isaiah that wrote the book. And it started with the Jewish commentator. And from him, the essentially the German schoolism uh, began to espouse the Deutero uh, Isaiah theory or even try Isaiah theory. And there are even some that would be in evangelical circles that uh, would accept that as well. But to that, we say, no, the evidence is really not compelling. It's too much theory that's involved and some pretty evident things that they cannot answer ultimately, I think. So you say, why spend that time talking about this? You kind of, in one sense, gave us, the, gave us the Reader's Digest version last week. But I think it's important that we understand it, that the reason that this position began was that those who espouse it or those who denied the supernatural. And if they were denying the supernatural, then they cannot see Isaiah speaking to a people prophetically, a people that events that are past him because they say that's miraculous. No one does that. 
Surely he had to be in exile. Surely he saw the rise of Cyrus himself. He couldn't speak prophetically about a man that he didn't even know, who didn't even exist at that point. That's miraculous. And to that we say, yes, it is. And to that we say, amen. Do you affirm that? We affirm the miraculous. And of course, with critical thinking, it denies further and further the miraculous. And this is why today you have some scholarship that would say, even when it comes to the miracles of Jesus Christ, it is questionable. I agree. (laughs) So God is speaking in the miraculous when he speaks his revelation, because the revelation is the mind of God through men on paper, And at times, before it was written, it was simply spoken. Some of you are in the 90 days of the Bible, so fun, right? And what have we been learning um, in the Exodus? And you shall say to the people, and you shall say to the people. And Moses would come to God, and Moses would go and speak to the people. And the people were terrified when Moses went up on the mountain. And you speak to God for us. And God did speak to him. And God spoke to them. That is miraculous. So we accept that. It is a part of our faith. How can we have Christianity without the miraculous? And so even in accepting the miraculous, there is comfort because we know the words of God are true. They are not created by man. Now, before I say any more, we are going to get to verses 1 and 2. Briefly, let me give, give you a recap, because I left off in a couple of points that I think are important for us to consider. We talked about how orthodoxy and orthopraxy meet together. That is, we have orthodox views, but what about our practice of those views? Here are the things that we should learn as we go through Isaiah 40 to 48. Uh, discard fear for faith and a faithful Savior. God is faithful, is he not? that if God is faithful, we can cast aside fear. That's a uh, Sermon on the Mount thought as well. Do not worry. Then we should also rely on God's sufficient scripture. It has the answers for everything in life. Do we agree with that? We should also rest in what reality? That God intimately watches over you. Remember what we read from Isaiah 40. He will come to you, and I read again in verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. If that's not into it, it is. Then we must also accept the reality that God's chastening. At times, he chastens us. It's coming from the hand of a sovereign God who loves us eternally. Amen. Now, for the moment, the scripture is clear. For the moment, it may not seem good. But in the end, it produces what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. All of us have gone through some difficulty in life where we can look back and see where the providential hand of God allowed us to go through it, but we were the better for it. We should also be bolder in our faith. We should know the one who has commissioned us. This is where Judah and Israel lost it. They were no longer being a voice to the nations. They were being influenced by the nations instead. They lost their sense of boldness. Number six, know that... Sovereign will will also always direct human choices. The rising and falling of kingdoms because God is using the kingdoms for his divine purposes. This is why you will see the rising of Osiris who will then destroy Babylon. 
And this is why there will be a, a rising of the Greeks and a rising of the Romans. Because God's sovereign will will trump all. Then number seven, we didn't talk about this before, rests in the truth that no circumstances or no circumstance is beyond divine reach. It doesn't matter what you're facing in life. And this, the, this is the beauty of even some of the language of Isaiah when he says, and we'll come to this and go into the in depth when Isaiah says, here you, some of you are taking a wood and you stretch it out to prepare to create this idol and you mark it off uh, and you create a God. But what's interesting about the language, Isaiah uses that says, well, okay, you stretched out and you've marked off and you've created a God. How about this? I stretched out the heavens and I've marked off the stars. Now, which do you want to serve? Hmm. Let's see. Six and one, nothing in the other. <laughs> which do you do? Then number eight. Take comfort that every person God has chosen will come to faith. Amen. You say, why, why is that a point that's relevant to this text? Because God is saying, you have sinned against me. I've sent you off into exile. I will bring you back again. And even right now, the people of God, when I say the people of God, the Jewish nation, uh, they are away, but God will bring them back. And if that be true for an entire nation that he has a covenant with, it is surely true. he has in eternity set his affection upon, right? So God has set his affection upon you. You must come to faith. And for those that know Christ, you did come to faith. And some of you can think right now, if you pause right now, when did you come to faith? In that moment, the Lord simply said, now is the time. <laughs> Let the veil be removed. And then you came to faith. And there may be someone right now, you perhaps can think of an individual that you know right now, and they're without Christ. And to be without Christ means that they will spend an eternity of separation from the living God. And that's why even Isaiah 40 to 48 ends with this thought. And it says, you remember the last verse, there is no peace for the wicked. Either you serve Yahweh or there's eternal separation. But here's the beauty of it. You have loved ones and friends and neighbors and co-workers. If God has set his affection upon them, they will come to faith. I've asked you this before, but I'll ask you again. How many of you came after 30 years of age? Yeah. Anyone come to the Lord after 40? Anybody after 50? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. The Lord... Here is your moment. Really, it's his moment to reveal, reveal his glory. There are loved ones. I can think about people right now that don't know the Lord. I pray for them every day. And for me, I can look at Isaiah and say, God's plan will unfold. Amen? I take comfort in that reality. Now, I wanted us to reconsider those key words, but we don't have time for it. Um, and the words are says and glory and lichen and holy and creator. He is a servant. He says to behold, there is none like him. And the graven images are all utterly ridiculous. God is the ultimate, ultimate creator. So how do we outline this text? 
two parts, simply. Two parts. The command of comfort, verse 1, and then the message of comfort. This really is a lesson in faithfulness and compassion. I mean, the text gives us these two divisions, and they in one sense act as an anchor for our study, and it communicates that this, it communicates the faithfulness of our God to keep his promises, and it communicates that our God is a compassionate God. And when is compassion necessary? I mean, compassion, we don't, we don't feel compassion when there's not a need, correct? I mean, if you go to times when I've been to, to different places around the world and my heart goes out to someone because I feel compassion for them, whether it be the little kids that I see in the streets of Haiti or the little kids in the barrio in La Vega, Dominican Republic, or, or other places that I've seen, I feel compassion for them. And of course, the ultimate compassion we should feel for any individual is their spiritual state. My heart goes out to them. And so God displays compassion for those that have need. And there are people who are in exile and the Babylonians have not done well by them, which we will consider later on. And so God, his compassions are kindled, if you will, towards them. God is a faithful God in all that he does, is he not? Everything that he has promised will, in fact, come true. We can never allow that to be rustled from our heart. The world and the flesh and the wants us to doubt the living God, but we must reject it. The world and the enemy and the flesh wants us to say, your God is not a compassionate God. Look at what he allows in the world. Why is there so much hurt? Why is there so much pain? But we must still go back and trust that we serve a sovereign and providential God. Do we not? We do. Do we have all the answers to life? No. And that's why sometimes the greatest comfort you can offer is just to be there and and listen. And sometimes young guys, especially, they're fresh out of seminary. They've learned a boatload of information, and they're ready to share it with the world. And sometimes the best thing you can do is sit and listen. See, there's a larger outline as well that's happening here. That's why I read verses 1. It really is a message of heavenly comfort, 1 through 11. Then we'll notice a message of heavenly character because it's looking at God and who he is. And as I noted before, notice verse 12. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. God is the one. And from verse 12 to 26, we see this character manifest. And then in verses 27 to 31, a very popular passage in preaching and commentaries and, and everything else. Verses 27 to 31 is really a message of heavenly courage. So we see comfort and character and then courage. Let's look at the first command, the command of comfort. Verse one, comfort, oh, comfort, my people says your gods. Stop there. But really is a, a main theme throughout these chapters. And how is it accomplished? How will the people of God be accomplished? Well, um, what Isaiah has written is through his vocabulary. It's through his rhetoric. It's how he argues. At times, it's historical analysis. He's bringing things to their attention and how they happen and when they happen. It's by comparison. You serve this God, here is God. You serve this ruler, here is God. 
So he does this very interestingly. And also, we need to set the context just a bit more. Uh, Notice, if you will, chapter 39. Chapter 39, verses 5 through 8. And it says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the words of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to where? Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And sons who will issue from you, whom you beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Notice Hezekiah's response. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is good. Now, pause there. Don't look. Don't look. Look, at, look at me for a moment, because <laughs> I know what you're doing. You're deciphering the next phrase, right? That's good. You're good students in that way. Think about what he just said. Everything's going to be taken away. My sons are going to be captive. Nothing is going to be left, he says, but the word of the Lord is what? Good. Mm, Good? Yes, good. Why? Because God is good. And whatever he speaks is good. Amen? And so we hold to that. But there is another element to Hezekiah as well. Because notice what he says. For he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. Yeah. So now, okay, so is the next thought comfort or comfort? Oh, that's just right after verse 8. Yes, it is in our Bibles, but it's not right after verse 8. Because now we have a gap. There's a gap between the end of chapter 39 and now this calling out of these words. Because now, 586, what happens? 586 B.C., what occurs? The Babylonians do what? Carry the Israelites away. So there's a large gap in between here. This is what happens as far as the exile is concerned. um, And the people coming, that is, the exile is concerned. That's a hundred years after his death. But then verse four, there's relief. So a pronouncement, there's a gap in time, and then there's relief. Relief is coming And it says, so cry out comfort. Interesting. The words are in a plural. So it says, many of you should comfort. It's not directed just to one prophet. And when he says comfort, uh, the the wording has a sense in which you do it because um, what you want to do is bring about a change of attitude. What would have been their attitude? They would have thought that perhaps being despondent, God has forgotten us. Is God the superior God? Where is our hope? Where is our future? So you offer comfort in order to change an attitude. Look with me at Genesis. Genesis chapter 10, this use of the word comfort. Genesis 24, actually. Genesis 24. Genesis In verse 67, 24-67, it says, And Isaac brought her into her mother's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Look at Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, 35. 
37, 35 says what? Then all the, all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Wept for whom? Wept for Joseph because his scandalous um, brothers say what? They sell him into slavery and they say actually he's been killed and they fabricate this and they say he's been slaughtered. And so Jacob tears his clothes and he says, I won't be comforted. The, the heartache is too much. Look with me at 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel 10. And then we want to note verse 2. It says, then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servant came to the land of the Amorites, well, the story unfolds, uh, they act despicably. But he says, I will console you. Isaiah, let's consider the word in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12, this sense of comfort. Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12, and then in verse 1. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to your Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comforted me. And this is what we see happening here. God has been angry with his people, but yet he shows them compassion. You would see the same use of the word in chapter 51, 49, 14 through 18. But let's go back to 40. Verse 1, comfort, oh comfort. Why the repetition? And the repetition is just here for emphases. If you were to note uh, Genesis 22, uh, God calls out Abraham, Abraham. You remember Absalom in 2 Samuel 18, and Absalom is finally killed. And what does David do? Uh, questionable judgment. And he calls out Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. And of course, Psalm 22, in Psalm 22, my God, my God. So the emphasis is needed to say, hear what is being said. In the Hebrew language, it's in a, a stem, a configuration that communicates a sense of intensity. Comfort my people, they're in need. And notice something else that's important. He says, my people, says your God. And this communicates what? The tone is one of covenant. It's one of covenant. They are my people, I am your God. Yes, you're in Babylon, you're lost, it seems, but I am there for you. Um, what are some of the things that the, the exiles would have questioned? What would they have been wondering? Well, who is Yahweh? They've been in Babylon for years, and they've been learning the gods of Babylon. They would have asked, who is Yahweh? They're removed from uh, true priestly services and prophetic voices that they would have heard throughout. But in Isaiah, he proves, no, he's an incomparable God. They perhaps would have wondered, can Yahweh deliver us? And Isaiah would have proved that because he's an incomparable God, he is more than able and he's willing to do it. They would have wondered, how can we know that this is going to come about? Because he's the only one who can predict and control all the events of life, which is what he proves throughout. So comfort. What about the message of comfort? Verse 2. Look at Isaiah 40, the message of comfort. He says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. And call out to her, her warfare is ended. Stop there. The tone is one of convincing. 
So he says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Some, I think the ESV says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And literally, which I just think is the best way to consider it, he says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. That's literally what it's saying. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Some would say, well, who's speaking? Is it Isaiah and the other prophets from his school? Um, Is it the priests that are speaking? The best position, I think, is that anyone who wants to speak for God is to speak kindness and comfort to the people of God. Um, One Old Testament scholar, Oswald, which I appreciate a great deal, said this when when he talks about speaking to the heart. It says to move someone who might be paralyzed by circumstances to take heart and believe. Now, when you think about speeches through history, hasn't it happened time and time again? Uh, Whether it be in some fabricated movie where it's the bad guys versus the good guys or it's some of these fantasy movies that take place. But we don't even have to go there. We we can come to real life. I mean, what happened after 9-11 to go back to that? I'll still remember seeing um, the Senate was saying, we stand together, Republican and Democrat, independent and, and libertine, Green Party, it doesn't matter. We stand together. We now have a common enemy. And you heard the words that men and women spoke um, after those days. And what did it say? Take courage. They were speaking to the heart of America. They were saying to Americans, we will never forget this. And in one sense, they were speaking to the world because it wasn't going to be limited to America, as we have seen Al-Qaeda terrorize other nations as well. It is that person who can speak to you in circumstances, and the circumstances seem to be overwhelming, and they to the heart to say, be encouraged. There's an answer. There's a solution. Um, David, when his brothers in chapter 50, his brothers were thinking, okay, Jacob is done. It says he spoke kindly to them. He spoke to their heart. You see the use of it in Ruth as well. Ruth 2.13. But one curious example is in Hosea 2. Remember, Gomer is married to what sort of woman? A prostitute. And he goes to her to convince her that she must change. And he speaks to her heart to convince her otherwise. There are people that you counsel, you need to encourage. And how do we do it? We speak to the heart. But what is the problem sometimes with the heart? Yeah, (laughs) you have to peel back layers, don't you? And sometimes it takes a while to get to the heart. Because sometimes we're just speaking to the intellect. And it's not to the, to the true person in the Hebrew mindset, the heart. This is the control center of man. Something about counseling and when do you say, okay, enough is enough. When do you not counsel anymore? And uh, people can have different uh, principles for that. But I said, unless a person generally wants counsel and they want to hear truth, it's of no benefit. Because then it becomes just a venting session. They come vent, they come back next week, vent. They come back the week after that and vent. And if they're not going to let someone speak to their heart, then it won't be beneficial. God says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. They may seem paralyzed. They may be wondering, where am I? 
They may think that maybe you're not as superior as we proposed that you were. The stories that we heard of the Exodus, maybe that wasn't really true. Maybe he didn't really deliver. Perhaps there was really no true Red Sea. And even thinking about the Red Sea, this is where scholarship goes awry as well. They don't want to accept the fact that the people of God walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They want to propose at that time of the year, perhaps it was something unique, and the Red Sea was dried out to the point where they could walk through it. A ridiculous. Why? Because they don't want to see the miraculous. He says, speak to the heart. But what's the message? Let me close with these thoughts. What's the message? The message is threefold. And it's right there in the text. How does it outline? It's right there in the text. What do you notice? In the English, it says that. Then it says what? That. And it says that. That gave you the outline. So it's just simple, three little subordinate clauses right here. And what is the message? Let me close with these thoughts. It is this. Number one, the comfort of finished labor. It says her warfare is and wrestled with this back and forth. Uh, there will be warfare in the future. Or is it going all the way into the future? There will be a time where there will be no warfare whatsoever. Uh, I take a position, that's why I said finished labor, because it can mean this sense in which they have been under hard labor, and now that is over for them. God will bring them out of Babylon. What, is else, what else is true about this message? It's over because of the, the graciousness of God. The graciousness of God. Look with me, Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, verse 15. God will be gracious to them. Notice what it says in verse 15. For thus says the, Isaiah 30, 15, The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You flee to horses, this will be the deliverer. And it says this, therefore the Lord longs, notice what it says, he longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion for you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Amen. He's ready and waiting and able. And even to the greatest of sinners, the Lord is saying, if you would just repent, I would forgive you. Have you ever thought there are people that just, okay, they've gone too far. But there is no too far with God. Amen. I mean, there's some people that are in Washington, D.C. right now. You say, these people have gone too far. How can that woman be saved? The blood of the servant. Amen. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh -huh. No, I, no, I mean this seriously. She tweeted out, you know, what? Uh, Texas says six weeks heartbeat can abort. So uh, I didn't read this to you. Uh, give me a couple of extra minutes this morning. Okay. So I can finish. May I have a couple? I, I need to read it to you. What's that? <laughs> I'm going to read it to you. Yeah, I'm going to read it to you. Cause the, the woman, this is from Nancy Pelosi. I had my stopwatch on or whatever on. So let me hold, give me just a couple extra minutes. It'll, I think it'll be helpful. Now, we need to pray for her soul right now. She is in sure need of it, absolute need of it. What did she say? Mm. There it is. Yes. So, 
Um, SB8 comes out, Texas signing the law, six weeks. If you hear a heartbeat, you may not abort that child. I saw video, young ladies were calling, playing the state. I'm at seven weeks, or uh, I'm at this point, and you heard the recordings. No, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And to that, I say amen. Yeah. I say amen to that. However, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of the United States of America, says this. Every woman everywhere has the constitutional and moral, notice that word, moral right to basic reproductive health care. Now, I'll pause there for a moment. Listen to that statement. Moral right to basic reproductive health care. The issue is not about health care. It's about abortion. See, this is how they twist words. And then she says this. We will fight SB8 and all immoral and dangerous attacks on women's health and freedoms with all our strength. Notice her, her language, moral and immoral. Is this not Isaiah? <laughs> As Isaiah says, did, did he not speak of you? <laughs> I'll make an application for this. Isaiah 50 and 20, Isaiah 50 and 20 says what? You are a people who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Good, evil, and evil good. This is calling Good, evil. She says it's immoral. Immoral. That if we hear a heartbeat from a child, that we should not abort it. That's immoral. And she wants to fight with all of her strength, which she will. And she has the God of this world behind her. Trust me in that. But it also means that her soul is lost. And anyone that would espouse anything like this cannot have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is my question for us is she wants to fight with all of her strength. And I'm not talking about just this law. I'm talking about living our Christian life. She's going to give it her all and she will give it her all. She is delusioned. She is darkened. She is what Ephesians says. She is thinking according to the futility of her mind. But how will we live? How will we live our faith? Now, see, that's the question. Isaiah has a purpose. I mean, I didn't labor over this just to say, here's some interesting lessons on uh, the history of Israel. Nobody should ever labor to preach just to say that. Here is another interesting part in the historical narrative of the life of Israel. It is more than that. It is what will you do? How will you live? Either God is going to be Yahweh and truly who he is, or are you going to be like the people of Israel and question whether or not Yahweh is truly is? as he is, and you'll be swept away with the world, just like the Israelites were swept away with the world, just like they had their idols, you will have your idols as well. God help us as we go from here. We thank you for your goodness that you demonstrate so often Give us grace. In Christ's name, amen.